You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with uh, Sharif Banu and myself, uh, Walid Ahmad. The uh, time is uh, three minutes past seven. It's Friday the 19th of August, 2022. As always, we have a packed program this morning. Uh, the Breakfast Show is an interactive broadcast. It means that all our listeners have the opportunity to join in any of the discussions taking place during the course of the program. All you need to do is to pick up the phone, dial uh, 0208-687-7878, and you'll be put through to share your thoughts uh, with us. Alternatively, you can use a more modern method of communicating, uh, the Twitter uh, and you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. As mentioned, we have a packed program uh, with a variety of different uh, subjects that are going to be explored. In a few minutes, I will begin with a rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are doing the rounds these days. Uh, I won't be spending too much time on each, uh, trying to rattle through as, uh, as many as possible during uh, the first half hour. And uh, those who are familiar with the show, let me just uh, remind them that... Um, we will have, uh, as always, two main topics that uh, we will uh, discuss in greater depth than other stories. Uh, the uh, uh, first uh, is concerning uh, uh, the uh, holy site uh, that is revered by Muslims all the world, and that is the Kaaba in Makkah, and in particular uh, the black stone that it holds. Uh, so the title of this first topic that we're going to hone in uh, during uh, the course of this program is importance of the black stone of the Kaaba. So that's the first topic, importance of the black stone of the Kaaba. Uh, we'll be discussing this uh, particular topic uh, with uh, Imam Ibrahim Noonan, who will be uh, joining us from Ireland. Uh, and we also spoke earlier to Dr. Bernard Heckel, who is a professor of New Eastern Studies uh, and director of the Institute for Transregional Study of uh, the Contemporary Middle East. Uh, we'll be sharing that what, uh, with you uh, as to what he had to say. And finally, for this particular segment, uh, we also spoke to theology student James Sinclair, and we'll be airing that clip uh, of our exchange uh, as well. So if you're interested in this uh, particular topic, uh, importance of the black stone of the Kaaba, make sure you remain tuned in from 7.30 to 8.15 when we'll be uh, reviewing that particular topic. Moving on, uh, the second uh, main topic, uh, well, it's about education and education uh, particularly related to uh, religion. We're living increasingly in a multicultural society and it would help if our educational system was geared to preparing students for diversity at work. So this is the title of our second main topic, preparing students for diversity at work. Um, and it has been brought about by a certain a study uh, that uh, has uh, been uh, that has reported recently um, to help us understand this topic uh, we'll be joined by Amadeep uh, Basi Amadeep is a journalist and trains hopefuls in that particular profession of how to cover stories without bias especially when it comes to BAME communities uh, Dr. Suzanne Newcomb will also be uh, on uh, to lend her expertise to understanding of the topic. And Dr. Newcomb uh, is, uh, will also be joining us, and that's quite useful because she's the honorary director of INFORM and co-author of the report uh, 
that uh, has uh, prompted this the selection of this particular topic, and that report was uh, promoting the exploration of religion and world views in schools. So it'll be very interesting uh, to speak to her as well and uh, and uh, get her take on this particular issue. Um, and uh, finally, we will have another contributor uh, for this particular item. Uh, this is Dr. Tim Hutchins, Assistant Professor of Religious Ethics, uh, Faculty of Arts in the University of New, uh, Nottingham. So we'll be able to also glean his views on uh, this particular issue uh, uh, as well. So lots to do, lots to cover. Uh, we're going to go for a short break immediately after that. We'll be coming back with uh, the weather and the news stories uh, that are circulating around the, uh, the, uh, the media. Don't go away. A new station, the voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the voice of Islam. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Peace be upon you, good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of The Voice of Islam with uh, Sharif Puna and myself, Walid uh, Ahmed. The time is, uh, well, approaching nine minutes past seven and it is the 19th of August 2022. As mentioned before the break, we'll be uh, having a rundown of the weather uh, before we move on uh, to discussing some of the stories that are circulating uh, in the wider media. Uh, as far as the weather is concerned, well, the BBC weather forecasters are predicting that today uh, rain will continue, but uh, will soon clear from uh, southeast England, leaving England and Wales dry with sunny spells. Northern Ireland and uh, Scotland will see a mix of sunny spells and showers throughout the day. As far as the evening is concerned, we'll see uh, showers uh, clear, leading to a dry and clear start uh, to the night. Later, spells of rain will push in from the west, heavy in places and mainly affecting Northern Ireland and Scotland. So, uh, gone are the days of that scorching heat that we were... um, we were experiencing uh, during the um, um, uh, during well during last week um, during the heat wave, and uh, so now more UK-like, British-like uh, weather is uh, resuming. So um, it's going to be wet, basically. Right. Uh, moving on to the stories that uh, have caught our eye that uh, we have found in the wider media. Well, uh, there is this item about um, stringent measures for cyclists. Uh, uh, Cycling may be a a mode of transport increasingly favoured for its health and environmental benefits, but the behaviour of some cyclists has become um, uh, a nuisance uh, and is drawing concern. In a recent uh, statement by Grant Shapps, the uh, Transport Secretary, uh, cyclists should be fined for breaking speed limits in residential areas because they are putting people at risk. 
Um, so it's surprising that uh, cyclists can go that fast. Uh, you wouldn't normally expect it, but uh, they do exceed 20 miles an hour uh, normally speed limits in residential areas uh, that uh, has been set. And uh, in some cases, over 30 miles an hour. Um, short of recommending um, registration plates and insurance for cycles, the uh, Secretary of State has urged for the high highway code to be updated to recognize speed limits for cyclists. They do run up speeds above 20 miles an hour in built-up areas and in excess of 30 miles an hour elsewhere. So what I was saying earlier seems to be uh, confirmed by uh, by 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 um, by, um, by, uh, by by the government. And reckless uh, cyclists can kill. Certainly those responsible for deaths of pedestrians face a maximum jail jail sentence, um, which currently is for two years, which is going to be reviewed. The Parliamentary Advisory Council of uh, Transport Safety uh, stated that last year, one in a hundred crashes where a pedestrian is killed is a cyclist's fault. Uh, whereas 65 out of 100 is where a car driver is responsible. So you have to put this into perspective. Um, So we uh, don't know how things are going to develop uh, on this because a new uh, government, although of the same party, is going to be um, uh, instated um, after the 5th of September. And we'll see how far this particular policy carries. Um, from an Islamic point of view, we can draw on one saying of the Holy Prophet, which uh, has some relevance here. And uh, the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, instructed his followers uh, on one occasion not to uh, sit on roadsides or to avoid sitting on roadsides. And his companion said, uh, there is no other alternative to, but to sit there uh, to talk. And thereupon, the uh, Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that if you have to sit at all, then fulfill the rights of the road. And uh, they asked what are those rights, and uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that lowering the gaze gaze so that you may not stare at unlawful things, uh, refraining from doing some harm to others, uh, responding to a greeting, and, uh, and doing good and forbidding evil. So, Refraining from doing harm to others is the central point there that is relevant from that particular saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. In another place, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that uh, faith has over 70 branches or, or over 60 branches, the uppermost of which is the declaration, none has a right to be worshipped but Allah, and the least of which is the removal of harmful object from the road. Um, so this is another saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that has some relevance to to how we should uh, use uh, pathways and roads, that uh, we should be um, careful in making sure that uh, our behavior, our conduct, does not cause or bring harm uh, to other users of that particular uh, pathway or road. Um, moving on. Uh, we have this uh, story that also caught our eye, which is uh, regarding a preventative uh, measure, uh, bowel cancer screening for all over 58. Uh, one of the most lethal forms of cancer 
is a cancer of the bowel, mainly because it is detected too late. Uh, its early detection is vital, uh, professionals say, if lives are to be saved. Uh, this formed part of the campaign led by the late uh, Dame Deborah James, who died of the disease recently. Um, currently, screening of all those 60 to 74 has been uh, routinely offered, but now this is to be extended for those younger uh, to the 58 to 68 group. It would mean that an extra 830,000 people uh, will be able to be tested, and the NHS is committed to offering the test to all over 50s by 2030. Uh, the cancer uh, currently affects 43,000 people and kills 16,500 people each year. And if uh, cancer is detected early, 9 out of 10 patients survive. But if diagnosed uh, later, the survival drops to 1 in 10. Uh, great progress has been made in tackling cancer. Uh, it does not spell the death sentence as it once did. And if caught in time, can be dealt with successfully. Uh, brings to mind that saying of the Holy Prophet that there is a cure for every ailment. Uh, that saying goes, there is no disease that Allah has created except that he has also created his treatment. And that's a, a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that is found in the book of Bukhari, one of the authentic books uh, of the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, the uh, uh, going over to politics, the Rwanda policy is, uh, has come under scrutiny. Uh, the government's uh, policy in this respect has been the cause of much controversy with supporters and critics uh, on either side uh, venting their views. Those condemning the initiative are pointing to a review of uh, this policy conducted by a specialist government. In fact, it was not a review of the policy, it was a review of the state of the country where uh, these refugees are going to be sent uh, for processing. So it was a review of the conduct of uh, Rwanda as a nation. And uh, this was conducted by a specialist government official. Uh, it re reported that Rwanda puts its citizens under close surveillance. So it wasn't a very positive report. Uh, equivalent of having an informant for every 10 households, the Foreign Office official conducting the investigation also reported that the state uses a combination of party intelligence and military personnel, which gave it considerable control over its uh, citizens. Uh, the report uh, was made on the, or signed off on the 26th of April, uh, two weeks before the Home Secretary enacted a deal to remove the first migrants to Rwanda. A full judicial review of the policies to begin next month. So there is still a lot of uh, a big tussle going on uh, when it comes to the implementation of this policy. A lot of uh, those who have condemned it uh, are fighting hard uh, to make sure that it is never actually um, um, put and never actually implemented. And uh, those uh, who do uh, support the policy say that uh, there is no alternative. That, uh, and it has to be said that there is a lot of support for the for the policy. Perhaps not 
uh, more than 50%, but uh, a, a considerable 30-40% of the, of the population do feel that something needs to be done in order to, to stem the tide of uh, refugees pouring in uh, from the continent onto these shores. Um, but uh, so I'm just mentioning that to give balance to what we are uh, reporting uh, on this broadcast. Uh, this is the Voice of Islam. Uh, it is a, a political uh, broadcaster, so we have to make sure that uh, we give uh, views of both sides uh, to uh, issues that are current. Another uh, issue that is very much current is uh, <laughs> the energy uh, crisis. Uh, the government is insisting uh, that um, it is not sleeping at the wheel as the country continues to career deeper into the cost of living crisis uh, uh, with the energy cap set to rise again uh, soon uh, by at least another 1,200 pounds. Many consumers who are already finding it hard to make ends meet are facing an impossible prospect uh, this autumn. The uh, current Chancellor, Nazim Zahavi, claims that he has drafted a range of proposals which the new incoming Prime Minister can uh, consider for implementation as soon as he or she uh, comes into office. A lot of talk, but no action, critics would say. Meanwhile, not much is found among the two Prime Minister hopefuls uh, fighting for support among their uh, conservative peers. Uh, the role, the poll leader, uh, Mrs. Truss, has hardly outlined any concrete proposals at all uh, in this respect. While Mr. Sunak has come up with something, he announced uh, £10 billion to help people with the energy bills. So that's one initiative that he was going. He said that he would impl implement. And uh, this would include temporarily uh, scrapping VAT on energy uh, bills, expected to reduce them by about £200, and providing five billions in support for the most vulnerable households. Miss Truss was uh, being tight-lipped about this all, claiming she was not prepared to reveal the content of her first budget, but would offer more support. Uh, what this would be, well, we just have to wait and see. Uh, it is expected that this would go beyond the tax cut she is uh, proposing and uh, uh, reverse the rise of national insurance, again, something that she has uh, been committing herself to. Uh, much criticism has also been levelled at the Labour Party for failing to challenge the government and coming up with uh, possible solutions. However, better late than ever, Mr. Sam, uh, Mr. Starmer earlier this week did materialise with uh, a set of proposals to help uh, the public. Uh, he is suggesting a freeze of the price cap at 1971 a year uh, for a typical household, giving them certainty over the coming months. He further outlined uh, that this would be paid by, for by extending the windfall tax on oil and gas firms and savings to government debt uh, repayments caused by a lower rate of inflation overall. Uh, the main criticism for this plan is that it is um, too broad brush, too wide-ranging, and uh, will engender help to all, rich and poor, which you don't really need it. Uh, and uh, whereas Mr. Sunak's plan, uh, it is being suggested, will be one that will be targeted, uh, or more targeted, or more focused uh, 
uh, to those in greatest need. Uh, mistrust plan does not exist, so can't really comment on that. So that's uh, as far as energy is concerned. Um, but there is a lot of uh, uh, consternation about the whole system, the way that is currently operated. Uh, we are told that the steep increase in household energy prices is uh, due to supply and demand on the global wholesale market. This has driven up uh, the amount the amount providers pay for gas and electricity, and that cost is now being passed on to the consumer. Uh, the energy cap was designed and is designed to protect consumers for short-term changes in prices. Uh, it is adjusted every six months now, every three months, and the level is based on the price energy suppliers pay producers for electricity and gas. Now, the energy companies, uh, the actually producers uh, like Shell and Centrica, who sell to the suppliers, are raking in colossal profits as a result of the system. And what France has done is to scrap uh, any kind of system of this kind and nationalize its energy company, EDF. And as a result of this, the profit uh, that uh, it makes is limited. And cr crucially, the price for consumers is just 4% more than it was before compared to what we are having to face, which exceeds 200%. It means that 60% of the current energy companies, uh, like uh, uh, BP and Shell, 60% of their profits uh, that are being siphoned off for shareholders would be going to the exchequer, who in turn will be funding the price for prices to remain low. Uh, so this is something that uh, has been mooted and it is something that is causing um, uh, further food for thought. It appears that uh, even though renationalization would be a good step to take, it does not, um, um, there is no appetite uh, for it. Uh, I don't know what you think, but that is uh, one of the ways that we can extricate ourselves from. Uh, this crisis. Some would suggest that ex the, the existing system is rewarding the rich and oppressing the poor. If this is the case, then the following verse of the Holy Quran should serve as an admonition. It reads, uh, you, you resort to oaths as instruments of mutual deceit, so that one people might take greater advantage than another, although Allah puts you uh, to the test. Surely on the day of resurrection, he will make clear the truth concerning the matters over which you differ. This is in chapter 16, verse 92. So let's hope that the current energy system is not a ploy forged by the rich to exploit the wider public and enrich themselves, thereby uh, because uh, such actions uh, are very much um, are frowned upon or uh, condemned by, by Islam. Let's move on. Uh, I'm just trying to get my clock working Right. So the time is uh, approaching 7.27. We're still uh, looking at some of the news items that uh, have been circulating in the wider media. Uh, there's one uh, particular item that uh, must have caught your eye. It's regarding stabbing in America. According to statistics, 
uh, some 321 people are subject to gun crime in the United States on a daily basis, of which 111 are fatal. Uh, last week, however, there was a stabbing in uh, Shotoka, New York, that sent newsrooms buzzing all over the world. It was of Salman Rushdie, the infamous author of Salonic Verses, that attempted uh, to pour ridicule on a face and personalities held daily by minions around the world. The culprit uh, of the attack on him was Hadi Matar, uh, an American citizen born and brought up in the States. Um, the attack was not fatal, and Mr. Rushdie is expected to make uh, a full recovery. Uh, it needs to be mentioned here that while one may deplore the work of uh, Mr. Rushdie when it comes to the Stanic verses, uh, the action of the assailant, uh, Hadi Matar, cannot be supported. Uh, and is not supported by the teachings of Islam or the practice of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, suffered much ridicule and attacks during his lifetime, but never did he resort to such uh, violence. Never did he resort to such violence while the Holy Prophet, uh, um, um, when, while the Holy Prophet himself was uh, being uh, subjected to this ridicule. Uh, there's the instance of Arwa bin Harb, who used to follow him, uh, shouting, uh, um, uh, Mudhamam. Uh, Mudhamam means the reviled or the dispraised. So this is what uh, she was doing uh, uh, openly uh, in the streets. Uh, and she continued with this insult, saying that we have denied uh, you and your religion, we loathe you, and we... And, um, we command that, um, and his command we have defied. So it's a, it's a couplet that uh, she was repeating. Um, so insulting him uh, openly in the streets. And the Holy Prophet's uh, reaction was not to order for her stabbing or to attack her or physically harm her in any way. Uh, he just smiled. He said, don't you see how God Almighty... Uh, diverts uh, from me the curses and insults of the crash. They insult Muhammad and they curse Muhammad, while I am Muhammad, the praised one. So forbearance and uh, patience was the example. On another occasion, while the Holy Prophet was with Hazrat Abu Bakr, uh, a certain individual continued to insult the Holy Prophet to his face. The Holy Prophet did not respond, but when Hazrat Abu Bakr res res responded in return, the Holy Prophet uh, felt very angry and left. He later told us the Bubaka that when the individual was engaged in his invective against him, uh, an angel was pres was present responding to what was being said. But when uh, you responded, when Azad Bubaka responded, the angel disappeared and the devil appeared instead. And I do, do not want to be in the company of devils. So the, the lesson, basically, the, the fundamental lesson that is being delivered there is to observe patience uh, in the face of such insults and not to respond with violence as some some have done. It is interesting to know a final point on this, that in the wake of this attack, the entire religion of Islam was not besmirched in the media as it has been uh, its practice, the practice of the media in the past. And no Muslim leaders were having to be brought in to, for interviews uh, accompanying them to distance themselves from this act. The media, it seems, has matured to recognize that such acts of barbarity as this attack uh, on a writer have nothing to do with the teachings of Islam and uh, is something that is confined to extremists. 
which are unfortunately found in all religions and persuasions. Right. So that brings us an end to brings an end to this particular part of the program. We are going to go for a short break uh, to regroup, uh, and uh, we'll be uh, resuming this program in uh, a minute, a minute or two time. Please don't go away. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion, and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Muhammad, voice of Islam. one of the most revered personalities of this age. To many, he was the most influential man ever to have graced this earth. The final prophet of God. The perfect man who brought the most perfect religion. However, today we live in a world which has been divided by various interpretations of his life. A world which is perplexed by the behavior of those who attribute his name to their actions. Who was Muhammad? What did his life stand for? To find out, read the life of Muhammad by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, the second successor of the promised Messiah. Our God is a very loyal God, and for those who remain loyal to him, he shows wonderful works. The world wishes to tear them to pieces and to eat them up, and every enemy grinds his teeth on them, but he who is their friend saves them from every danger and brings them out triumphant on every field. How fortunate then is he who does not let his hold go of such a God. To him we render our faith and it is him we have recognized. Of all the world he alone is the God who has sent down his revelation on me, who for me has shown powerful signs, who has sent me down as the promised Messiah for this age. There is no God except He, in heaven nor on earth. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. Why are interest rates prohibited in Islam? Paying interest is a way of increasing the lender's money to the detriment of the one who receives the loan. It encourages taking the advantage of those who are in need for the benefit of those who are already wealthy and powerful. It is also a way of the accumulation of money in the hands of the few who own capital sums. This is not allowed in Islam. As a matter of fact, Islam encourages exactly the opposite attitude. In Islam, if someone has a large sum of money, this person has to pay 2.5% of this money every year if the money is not being used in any trade or business. This sum is paid towards charity. This encourages a Muslim not to hoard money without exerting any effort and to use it for the betterment of the society as a whole. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with uh, Mr. Shri Banu and myself, Ali Lamad. The time is 7.34, just gone 7.34 in fact. Uh, we will be now looking at uh, the first of our main stories. Uh, it's about the importance of the Blackstone and uh, the Kaaba. And uh, we do have uh, Mr. Sharif Manu. Uh, uh, Salaam alaikum, Sharif. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, how are you? <laughs> um, by the grace of God, I'm good. Thank you. And how are you? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Uh, a bit lonely, but uh, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm supported now by your uh, comforting voice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, I can't be in the studio because I'm quite far away, but I've been online. Yeah. Thank you very much. No, um, right. Um, so, what is this uh, first uh, uh, story about? Uh, the importance of the Black Stone of the Kaaba. 
Well, so pilgrims in the great mosque of Mecca in Saudi Arabia can once again touch and kiss the one of Islam's most revered relics, the black stone, um, which is set in the sacred Kaaba building. Mm-hmm. It's a barrier around the Kaaba that was set up at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic has now finally been removed. This barrier set up for social distancing has been removed just in time for the Umrah pilgrimage season. The Hajj is also a pilgrimage at Mecca that Muslims who are able to must perform at least once in their lifetime. And it takes place set year in and in 2020. 2022, it ran between the 7th of July and the 12th of July. Mm, the height of summer. So in the height of summer. Mm. But in the Islamic tradition, the black stone itself, which is a set in the eastern corner of the iconic square Kaaba, is believed to date back to the time of Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. It was already held as a sacred, um, a sacred before the rise of Islam. And is said to have originally been white, but turned black through receiving the sins of those who touched it. Oh, mm-hmm. okay, all right. So at least uh, that's what is being claimed. Okay, okay. It is. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, right. We we spoke to a, a number of. Well, I spoke to um, uh, Professor Hackel on this. Uh, we will be sharing that. Uh, a uh, particular um, uh, clip with uh, with our listeners. So here it is. Uh, Dr. Bernard Hackel is Professor of Near Eastern Studies. He is uh, with us on the phone. Dr. Hackel, thank you very much for joining us today. Tell me, uh, we're discussing uh, the Kaaba, the Black Stone. Uh, for some, the, the Black Stone and the Kaaba is seen as a symbol of unity and brotherhood. Uh, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us about the history of the Black Stone and some of the transformation it has been through? Um, sure. Yes, you're right. The Kaaba um, is a, a, a very important symbol in Islam. It's the direction of prayer. It's the building to which all Muslims uh, pray uh, five times a day. It's also um, c- considered to be uh, one of, you know, a very old building that was built uh, um, to worship God. Um, so it's often referred to in Arabic as al-Bayt al-Aqib, the old house. Um, and uh, it does contain in one of the corners, and uh, um, its eastern corner, a, uh, a, a black stone that's embedded. Uh, it's not in fragments. It's, it's, it's thought to have been one stone once before it broke up into pieces. Uh, some argue that it was originally a meteorite, and it was a stone that was very important in uh, in pre-Islamic times as well, in Jahili times, there's a very famous uh, a reported incident with the Prophet Muhammad having, before his prophecy, um, as having uh, arbitrated between different groups and clans in Mecca um, over who had the privilege of carrying the stone and placing it in the Kaaba. And, uh, and it has remained an important symbol even after the coming of Islam. Um, so when pilgrims go to Mecca, and there's a greater pilgrimage and a smaller pilgrimage, what's called the Hajj, is the great pilgrimage, uh, which is timed to specific uh, specific uh, days of the year and a specific month of the year. And then there's a minor pilgrimage, which is called the Umrah. Whenever pilgrims go to Mecca, they circumambulate the Kaaba, which means that they walk around it 
um, <clears throat> in a counterclockwise fashion. And whenever they uh, are able to get to the black stone, which is now embedded in the corner, they try to touch it or kiss it. Over many, many centuries now, it has become extremely smooth and worn down. Um, and it's a great honor and privilege to be able to, to get close to it and to, and to be able to touch it. Not so much to worship it. It's not worship. The stone itself is not worship. But it's, it's regarded very highly because of its history and it's because of its connection to, uh, to the Prophet. Mm-hmm. And with this kissing and uh, touching, hasn't it uh, worn down and wouldn't it wear down completely? Uh, I mean, it, it's a very hard stone, so it has worn down. And as I said, it's, gotten, it's been broken up into fragments. Will it wear down completely? I don't know. I uh, mean, okay. uh, I'm just yeah, wondering. I, I by, by the way, there was one thing I forgot to mention, mm-hmm. which is that uh, Mecca was once attacked. Uh, I mean, it was attacked a number of times in its history, but one, one time it was attacked and the stone was taken from, uh, fr- uh, from Mecca to Eastern Arabia, and then it was returned later on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my question about erosion and uh, and wearing down was uh, basically aimed at finding out if there's any protection being uh, given to the uh, to the stone to prevent that taking place. But you seem to indicate there isn't any. No, you can still. I mean, it's, it's embedded in cement. The, the different fragments are embedded in cement, and mm-hmm. uh, pe- people who get to it can still touch and kiss right, it. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, over time it will. Uh, over time, yeah. I imagine it will get smaller yeah. and smaller because it's like any anything that's touched, even stone, gets mm. worn down. Mm. Uh, there has been uh, some renovation around the Kaaba. I mean, personally, uh, according to my notes, during the Ottoman Empire, and then uh, uh, to accommodate pilgrims by King Saud, and then by the other royal members. Yeah. Um, can you tell us yeah. about the history of Saudi Arabia and how the region has developed politically, socially, economically? Yeah, so it, actually there have been renovations of the uh, of the Great Mosque in, in Mecca over m- m- many over many periods, actually from the earliest times until very recently. Um, the Saudis, the Saudi state, um, took over and conquered uh, the Hejaz, which is the western province of of uh, what is today Saudi Arabia, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in 1925, mm. and they uh, they 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 united that area with the rest of their kingdom um and uh they uh, the saudis have a particular uh, interpretation of islam uh, which is uh, referred to as hanbali mm-hmm. that refers to a particular uh, individual called ahmed ibn hanbal who died in the year 855 and he has both a theological school and a legal school and what they did was they found that um the different the schools of law were praying separately um, you had many different um, orientations in Mecca and, uh, in terms of religious practice, and they united that. They unified this under their own Hanbali leadership. But they kept Mecca open to all Muslims um, so that they realized it's an international city. It's a place of, that is extremely cosmopolitan. They tried to impose some of their views, but not all of them. Um, they did ban, for instance, Smoking, which was quite prevalent in Mecca in the in the early 20s until their their arrival, they did also ban certain types of teaching that took place there, um, and and imposed their own interpretation, but have kept it open for 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 pilgrims. So that if you go to Mecca, let's say today, and you visit it, 
you'll see that there are uh, Sunnis of various kinds, there are Shiites of various kinds, meaning Ismashiris, Zaydis, even Ismailis go there. Uh, Buharas, for instance, will, uh, are allowed there and do pray there. So it's a fairly uh, um, open place and for Muslims mm-hmm. to come and visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, are uh, people allowed to worship um, in their own way there? Um, I mean, there is there are differences in the way that prayers are offered among Shia, for instance, and Sunnis. Uh, yes. Is that, is that permissible? Yes, it, it is permissible uh, if you're praying individually. However, the congregational or communal prayers, when there is, let's say, one, let's say it's the, the noontime prayer, mm-hmm. when all Muslims are supposed to pray congregationally, then the imam, the leader of the congregation who's leading the prayer, typically is a hanbali. Right. He belongs to the school, that school, and everyone is expected to pray behind him. Now, if you're a Shiite, let's say, and you don't do what is called the clasping of the hands, the dham, but you keep your hands by your side. That that no one's going to stop you from doing that. You okay. can pray that you know with your own specific rights. Right. But you're supposed to pray congregationally with everyone else. Uh-huh. Okay. And um, what about Saudi Arabia generally? How's it looking to utilize uh, renewable energy? And will this be able to ben- benefit the pilgrims as well? So Saudi Arabia, you know, is one of the largest producers of oil in the world. Um, and it has something like 23% of the proven reserves of oil in, in the world. So it's an extremely well-endowed country when it comes to energy resources, fossil fuel resources. But a lo- a quite, a, a, quite a lot of that, those resources are used domestically to generate electricity, to desalinate seawater, to freshwater. And what the Saudis want to do is to move away from this dependence on oil, mm-hmm. to liberate as much of it as possible for exports, and to generate energy using other sources. So they have a plan. This is a Vision 2030 document that was produced by the Saudi government. They have plans for uh, creating large solar energy uh, parks. They want to also build nuclear power stations uh, and to build wind farms. And in the hope that they can liberate um, and produce energy through these renewable resources, that more of their oil can be sold and exported. Um, now, it, it, they are they've started with the solar plants and the wind parks, not the nuclear. Once those are up and running, and you know the country is very well endowed with both solar uh, because it, it's in the yeah. it, it's very sunny there. Yes, and wind. Once once those resources, once those plants are up and running, then I imagine um, you know most of the energy or quite a bit of the energy that's used for. Um, say, the train between Mecca and Medina or uh, the cities of Mecca and Medina themselves and other cities in Saudi Arabia will be using uh, renewable resources. Okay. Um, uh, It seems Saudi Arabia may be uh, at a crossroads. You've written a book, Saudi Arabia and Transition. Can you tell us a little little bit about that? I mean, Saudi Arabia is definitely in transition, and um, the transition is largely due to the fact that um, the the sons of the founder of the kingdom in the 20th century have all gotten very, very old. Mm-hmm. Uh, the present king of Saudi Arabia is well into his 80s, and a transition in power and rule has to happen to the younger generation of princes. Uh, so there's a political transformation uh, in terms of dynastic succession that's taking place. 
but also uh, these these new uh, younger rulers uh, in Saudi Arabia, in particular one, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, hmm. has ideas about how to ch- change the country and to, for instance, diversify its economy, to socially liberalize its, uh, its society, to lessen the power and influence of the religious uh, police and the religious establishment, which is very uh, Hanbali or Wahhabi, as, as uh, non-Saudis call it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he has a vision for changing and transforming society, largely driven by, for prag- by pragmatic reasons. I mean, right. are, he wants his country to become more economically independent and dynamic, independent of oil. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to do that, it has to become a more uh, dynamic society and right. more economically diverse society. So that's the transformation that's taking place and has been taking place for the last uh, seven or eight years. Okay, and this is what is encapsulated in your book, is it? Saudi Arabian transition. Actually, no. The book, the book is. I'm the editor of the book. The book is was published before uh, this transition, this very dramatic transition began. Ah. Um, so it, it was talking. It was talking. The book talks about the tra- the changes that were happening in society until around 2015. Ah, but yeah. I just described in terms of the transition and diversification of the economy. Those were things that were discussed before, but were never quite implemented. Uh-huh. Now you have the full implementation of this of this project. One of the one of the implications of this transformation, by the way, that we're seeing now under the Crown Prince, is that um, we'll see you see in Saudi Arabia greater tolerance for different kinds of Muslims. Mm-hmm. In the past, it used to be fairly strictly. Uh, you know, one interpretation was fairly strictly enforced. I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, shops were forced to close down uh, for every prayer, uh, from the noon prayer until the evening uh, prayer, mm-hmm. uh, by, by religious police. And mm-hmm. if you weren't praying and if you weren't going to the mosque for every prayer, you would be t- told and you might even be forced to do this. Right. All of that is stopped. Okay. All of that is stopped. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, we have to end. Right, so that was uh, Professor Hackle, who we spoke to earlier. Uh, we've also got now uh, Mr. Ibrahim Noonan. He's uh, a missionary of the Ambi Muslim community in Ireland, and uh, he'll be uh, discussing this subject with uh, my co-host, um, uh, Mr. Sharif Banu. Over to you, sir. Assalamualaikum, Imam Ibrahim Noonan. Welcome, and um, welcome to the breakfast show. Waalaikum salam. How are you doing? Um, by the grace of God, Alhamdulillah, very good. And how are you? How's how is it in Ireland today? Uh, today is good, Alhamdulillah. A bit cloudy, which we're happy to have after all those <laughs> months of heat. Um, I don't think anyone's complaining about the the cloudiness at the moment. We're quite enjoying it, actually. Alhamdulillah. No, no, no I, I can I can certainly say that I'm enjoying the um, the lovely weather we're having. Nice to be back to normal British weather. Not, exactly, not the uh, exactly. not the sub-Saharan weather we've been having over the last few weeks. Imam <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. we've been discussing the importance of the Black Stone of the Kaaba. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us about the history and the significance of the stone and Makkah for Muslims? Yeah, uh, de- definitely. Um, well, firstly, I would say that... Um, like everything of ancient history, uh, there is always myth and uh, folklore around many mythical or you know his, ancient history. So this is one thing 
uh, we've got to keep in mind that uh, the history of the Blackstone itself goes back to the time of uh, Hazrat Adam, peace upon him, uh, which is like uh, nearly um, 6,000 or so many years. But the thing that we should take from this is that um, with every folklore or with every story, there's always um, truth within it. There's always uh, a, reality, a reality to it as such. Um, and therefore, the black stone, for, as far as Muslims are concerned, uh, is certainly something of great value, of great importance, uh, something which has a, a huge essence within the lives of Muslims. And indeed, I would say um, to others prior to the uh, um, advent of Islam. So the black stone essentially is, is something that is believed uh, to have been uh, associated with um, Hazrat Adam. Uh, there's two kind of mythical or two kind of narratives of that. One is that when, ha- when Adam was thrown from heaven uh, to the earth, which of course is not uh, the case uh, that we believe in. We believe that he was not thrown from, head- uh, from heaven, I mean in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, but rather he just lost his position in the sight of God. But what we understand is that this stone, um, this precious stone, which uh, the meteorites, we believe it's a meteorite that came onto the earth, um, and that the, the, the angel Gabriel uh, gave it to um, uh, Hazrat Adam, and then for, for that moment on, it became very sacred to Adam. <clears throat> and we know that he built a place of worship. Um, he built probably the first, um, you know, organized uh, kind of worship of the oneness of God. And from that moment on, it has remained within, uh, um, you could say, handed down, I would believe, uh, to the descendants of Adam, Adam, right through the history, and right up to, uh, you could say, the second phase of, of the knowledge of the Black Stone, uh, which is known as Hijri Aswad, um, where Hazrat Ibrahim um, rebuilt the uh, the Kaaba, the kind of Kaaba, in what is now known as Saudi, uh, would have been known at that time as the Hijaz. Um, so from there, we, we see different narratives about this, where Hazrat Ibrahim apparently, when he was building, uh, rebuilding the, the, the Kaaba, um, he noticed a very beautiful, shiny stone. <clears throat> and he there told Ishmael, his son, that uh, we, we will put this within the structure, a primitive structure it would have been at that time, but still, nonetheless, a, within the structure of, the, of, the, of the, what became now what we know as the Kaaba. And he explained that the Hazrat Ibrahim, Hazrat Jabriel, Hazrat Gabriel gave this uh, to basically Hazrat Adam uh, when the, the Kaaba was being built. So there's a very significant religiousness to it. Um, and it has been since that time extremely important for Muslims, especially those going to uh, perform the Umrah, or perform the Hajj. Uh, the other thing I would like to add to this is, it is said that, uh, and this is, this is historically accurate in the sense that we have more reliable um, information on this from the time of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when uh, he uh, was alive and well, and um, we know that there was a dispute amongst the, the Arab leaders at that time in Mecca, and that uh, dispute in where to put the stone because they were rebuilding or possibly renovations to the Kaaba at that time 
um, during the time of uh, the Prophet, peace be upon him. And uh, because of that, there was a dispute amongst the leaders. But one of the leaders himself said that the next person that comes through this gate, a particular gate in, um, uh, in, 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 in Saudi, in, in the Hijaz at that time, um, that the first person that comes through that will be the one that will decide where it should go. And this was by Umar bin al-Bukhari, um, um, I think his name was, uh, but he was a leader at that time. And the very person that walked through that gate was Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And therefore, he remarkably uh, united the whole of the Arab leaders at that time by getting each leader to hold the four corners of a, of a, of a sheet. And they put mm. it up, uh, raised it to the level of a certain height. And then the Prophet, peace be upon him, placed it in its rightful place. And that is exactly where it is till this day. So that is the... A very summary. I mean, of course, there's more details into that, but that's a very summary of uh, the importance of um, um, the black stone uh, that every year Muslims and Umrah and uh, and Hajj and I, Alhamdulillah, had the honor of being one of them when I did the Hajj, and uh, where you'd go and you'd uh, kiss the stone in remembrance of of, of of Allah the Almighty and, of course, of the, of the Holy Prophet peace upon him. Um, Imam, Imam Ibrahim, if I may, um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was when we talk about the black stone, there's a lot of myth and a lot of um, folklore that's attached to it. One of the things that I read out earlier when the introduction was that it is believed that the stone was originally white and that it turned black through receiving the sins of those who touched it. How much of that is actually myth and how much of that is... Um, Real in the sense that we know, but we believe, as Ahmadi Muslim, that it was a meteorite that comes in science, kind of shows us that when meteorite enter the atmosphere, it burns, and all these kind of things. So, do you have any um, insight into this? Or, or? yeah, I, I think it's that. I mean, in my opinion, that is more the mythical side of it rather than the mm-hmm. reality. Um, I'm not aware of any meteor that hits the Earth's surface, comes through the surface, and ends up white. Um, mm-hmm. It has to be. It has to be burnt. It has to burn. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, um, this belief, of course, is something which has. It's a mythical belief that it was. It was white, and then it, over time, over centuries, over history. Uh, because of the iman of all the Muslims kissing it, and because of their sins, it turned black. Um, I would, I personally believe that is myth rather than reality. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. I mean, there is a there is an area where we have to be um, logical about certain things. What what mm-hmm. we should be taking from this is just yes, we believe absolutely. It was possibly, definitely, it was a meteorite which hits the Earth, and has a Gabriel certainly uh, gave this or hinted to, or uh, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, made it aware to Hazrat Adam, and then of course the, the, the narrative goes down to Hazrat Ibrahim al-Islam, who re-mentions this. Um, so I believe there's a there is a, a lot of myth in it from going from white to black. Um, um, I, I can't see. This, you know, within Islam, the whole purpose of the Hajj, the whole purpose of Umrah, the whole purpose of all of that is um, that your sins are forgiven. And therefore, mm-hmm. 
rather than it going black, it should be turning back to white in that case. Um, exactly. So, yeah, this is the whole point. So um, I think it's just a myth part of it. The reality of it is it is a precious stone, a precious meteorite, which we know came from Allah the Almighty. Mm-hmm. It's in the Kaaba, and it's there more from a reverence. It's not worshipped. We don't worship it. We don't reverend it in the sense that we bow down before it and pray to it. That's not what we do to it. It's simply when, I mean, I certainly from my own experience, when I went to Kanakaba, I have to be honest, um, I did become emotional when I saw it because of the reality of mm-hmm. 6,000 years or kind of five and a half thousand years, 6,000 years of its history and its association mm-hmm. with Adam, the prophet of God, with Hazi Ibrahim, the prophet of God, and of course, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So I think it's, it's a more of a myth that it went from white to black, um, mm-hmm. but it certainly, it certainly was that stone that Hazrat Adam would have possibly put into the, but not possibly, but did put in the structure of the primitive Kaaba at that time. I, I agree. And, and when I was looking into this in terms of what's myth and what's logical, when you think about a meteorite coming, entering the Earth atmosphere, it goes wide. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the Breakfast Show of the Voice of Islam with me, Walid Evan and Sherif Banu. Uh, we were talking to Imam Ibrahim Noonan before the, before the news item. I understand, um, uh, Sharif, you still have a question left for him. Um, not not necessarily a question, Imam Sahib, but just what well, just wrapping up what we were saying, and if we apply logic to um, the myth around the stone being white, is if we apply science nowadays, we see that when a meteorite enters the atmosphere, it burns in a bright white light, which at the time could have perceived as a white stone entering the atmosphere, but when in, when went to collect it or pick it up, it turned black. So that could be one of the logical explanations, but that is that yeah, in my in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it makes it makes sense. Um, um, we have to be careful, in my opinion, regarding uh, mythical things uh, regard associated mm-hmm. religion, which there, of course, there will always be a mythical um, folklore attached to all faiths, including. Um, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever it may be. And Islam, unfortunately, not Islam. Islam has nothing to do with this. Unfortunately, there is uh, narratives which come along later. And the the reason they do this is simply to inspire, to keep Muslims, uh, their iman, their faith strong. Uh, But Mm -hmm. the problem with that is then, uh, you know, Thousands of years later, you have modern science, which does explain a lot of things. Um, exactly. So I, 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 I would agree with you. That's how I would have, would have understood that was happened, uh, that it was a meteorite, a black stone, um, and not that it turned uh, over, over time, it turned white, and then it, uh, the sins of the uh, of Muslim. I mean, mm-hmm. let's, let's, put it in, let's, let's put another logical part of this. Are we saying that then... Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he kissed it, that his sins, if he had any, which he didn't, of course, he was sinless, but Hazrat Abu Bakr, Hazrat Umar, when they kissed it, that all their sins went into that stone and they started turning black? Uh, I don't think so. Um, no. They were righteous, God-fearing people. Um, no, I, I would agree with you on this point. I think that is the most logical, logical explanation. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Um, Imam, thank you for your time this morning and your insight into the Blackstone. I wish you a um, 
peace and blessing of Allah be upon you for the rest of your day and uh, we inshallah will speak to you soon again on the show in- inshallah jazakallah for having me assalamu alaikum wa alaikum assalam right we also spoke to uh, james sinclair on the subject uh, he's a theology student uh, this is what he had to say so we have with us today uh, at the voice of islam radio station james sinclair and you're a canadian uh, revert to islam and student of theology assalamu alaikum thank you for joining us today at the voice of islam radio station wa alaikum assalam thank you for having me so uh, we're looking at the Islamic perspective here, and I wanted to ask you, what does the scripture or the sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, say about the black stone? If you could shed some light on that, please. So this is something that's, that's actually very uh, personal to me. In my, in my journey through Islam, this is something that really touched my heart, um, because what we know from the history of Islam and what we know from the history of the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam is that before he even claimed prophethood, um, this, was, this was an incident in Islamic history uh, that shows a lot of importance on the character of the Holy Prophet, and it shows a lot of importance on the, uh, the, the type of person he was, um, so much so that uh, when, when they were deciding who would be the person to uh, place the, the black stone into the, the Kaaba when they rebuilt the Kaaba, they said uh, the next person that comes to the to the Kaaba to do prayers, we'll let that person be the person to decide uh, what we'll do. And at that time, they were fighting; they were battling over potentially, you know, who who could potentially be the person to put the black stone. And it had, it had such importance. And uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, he came up with a great idea. Uh, to allow everybody to have a, a sense, a feeling of importance uh, when it came to putting the black stone into the Kaaba. Um, he said, let's, let's place it into this sheet and each of the leaders of the tribes can take a corner of the sheet and we'll, we'll all carry it together um, and we'll, we'll, we'll prepare to place it. And at the time when the decision was made for one person to place the, the stone, it was actually given to the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam um, and to me, this is such a beautiful story because it comes before uh, the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, before his claim to prophethood. And it speaks, again, to his character and it speaks to um, his truthfulness. And uh, I, at that time, they, they called him uh, the Sadiq or the Sadiq, uh, which, which means the truthful. And, and to me, that's, it, it, just, it still gives me goosebumps to this day when I think about it because this all came before... The, the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam before his claim to prophethood. Absolutely, thank you for that. And for some, this holy land and stone is a means of unification and brotherhood. However, there is a lot of disunity amongst Muslims and hostility towards MDs. So, what more can be done to increase this sense of brotherhood? I think education is the key. Um, people use the word ignorance, and it's. It's almost it's almost used as a derogatory term, but I I feel that if you look at the the understanding of the word ignorance, it just means someone who doesn't know. And education can be the key. A lot of people um, their hearts are their hearts are closed, their their minds are closed, and this is something that you can find in the Quran as well. They they keep their they keep their minds and their hearts closed to the possibility of. Uh, 
another prophet after the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu And as MD Muslims, we believe that um, the door for prophethood never closes. And there's, there's proofs to this in the Quran, there's proofs to this in the Hadith. Uh, we just believe that the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was the last law-bearing prophet. And um, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed al-Qadian, the, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, um, his claim to prophethood is a, is a subordinate claim to prophethood that only came uh, through his love for the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So to answer your question, I think education is key. I think um, open-mindedness. I think for the Muslims and even the non-Muslims that uh, don't want to believe in in uh, a different group of Islam or a different sect of Islam, or even Islam in general, they just have to be open-minded. They have to suspend their disbelief. And that's one way that they could potentially uh, open their eyes and their minds. And, and even myself, um, I was born a Christian. I was brought up in a Christian environment. And it was only because I had an open mind that I, I was willing to, you know, educate myself more uh, on Islam, on the, the teachings of Islam, on the truths of Islam, th- that I was able to, in fact, accept Islam myself. Thank you for that. And, and lastly, there are some that raise the allegation that, well, the Jalsa Salana, the annual convention within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, this is considered like a pilgrim. Now, why is this incorrect, and what is the difference between the Jalsa Salana and pilgrim? And if you could explain the significance of each of these. It's an excellent point to bring up. Um, the Jalsa Salana is... Uh, different than the pilgrimage that uh, Muslims make uh, when they perform Hajj, or if they're they're going to travel to to Mecca to perform the pilgrimage, it's different in a sense that uh, as Andes we have uh, we have a, a sense of brotherhood, a sense of community amongst ourselves uh, that's much stronger than I've, I've seen or felt anywhere else in the world in any other uh, environment. And it's our way of reconnecting uh, the brothers and the sisters. We reconnect under one leader, under our caliph. And this can't be compared to Hajj or to traveling to Mecca because that's something that is a requirement of faith. That's something that's required for all Muslims. Um, And those of us who cannot travel to Mecca, those of us that cannot travel to do Hajj um, for reasons, uh, financial reasons, for fear of persecution, uh, for whatever reasons they may be, us traveling to Jalsa, uh, though it, it does, it does, uh, it does have a, a similar, um, travel involved, things like that. I would, I would say that you cannot compare the two because one is a requirement of faith and one is a, just a way for us to connect as as Amdi brothers under one leader, under one caliph. And uh, recently we had our Jalsa Salon UK, and I was, unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend this year. Um, and previous years I was unable to attend because of COVID. But uh, I'm hoping in the in the future I'll be able to attend again, as it's, uh, it's just, there's, there's a, there's an overwhelming spirituality that's, uh, that's tied in with it. And there's an over, overwhelming spirit of brotherhood that is uh, associated with the Jalsa Salana. And 
when when you think about that and you think about the pilgrimage, uh, these are two completely separate um, separate journeys that Muslims uh, need to take. And um, as you said, uh, there, there is a great deal of persecution against Amri's. Many Amri's are afraid to travel and, and do the, the pilgrimage. Um, I know I only know a handful myself that has done it. But um, hopefully one day uh, the rest of the the Muslim world will accept Amri's uh, as as true Muslims, as we are uh, the ones who are actually following the teachings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, uh, and accepting the the caliph uh, of the of the time. The the Imam of the age is actually um, Islam. It's in the history of Islam. Uh, historically, we were we were supposed to um, have somebody that comes in the in the future, a latter day reformer. And as MDs, we believe that that was the uh, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed Al Qadian. And after um, his passing, in it was the system of Khilafat that was foretold by the the Holy Prophet Muhammad that we are still following to this day. Our present caliph, Hazrat Masur Ahmed, he is our 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 connection to uh, our connection to to God on earth right now. He's our he's our spiritual connection. That's uh, that's what most MDs, MDs believe. And without that, I feel that we we're we're, we're like lost sheep. So. We have our, our, our spiritual guide. We have our leader. Sorry, I, I, I've gone off topic a bit. Uh, my, my apologies. But I, I believe I've answered the, the question um, as to the comparisons between Chalsa and uh, the pilgrimage. They can't be compared. They're, they're two completely separate events. I think both need to be experienced um, by, by all MDs and all Muslims alike. I've met many Muslims attending Jalsa Salanas, and they have given such positive feedback and they have given such positive uh, feelings that that they no longer have any uh, questions or or any disbeliefs about the Ahmadiyya movement because they can see that you know we're we're just we're trying to you know gain a sense of spirituality and, and a sense of brotherhood when we when we have these Jalsa Salanas every year. Right. So that was uh, James Sinclair. Um, he's talking to uh, one of her uh, interviewers earlier. Uh, just to uh, bring this uh, particular item to a close, um, uh, around the Blackstone, um, let me just uh, present a quote from the writings of the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, Azamiza Ghulam Ahmed. Um, he says, uh, When in love, a person's being revolves around its beloved and kisses its threshold. As such, the Holy Kaaba has been provided as an example for the true lovers of God. And God says, look, this is my house, and the black stone is the cornerstone of my threshold. This commandment has been given so that one may physically express their fervent love and affection. Hence, pilgrims physically circle around the place of uh, Hajj, and the Kaaba, and their expressions show that they have become infatuated and lost in the love of God. They forgo adornment, shave their heads, and display the expressions of those who have become in, 
trapped, uh, enraptured as they perform circuits of love around the Kaaba and they kiss its stone, perceiving it to be the cornerstone of God's threshold. This physical fervor brings about a spiritual warmth and love. So while the body circulates around his house, the Kaaba, and kisses the cornerstone of his threshold, at the same time, uh, the spirit revolves around the true beloved and kisses his spiritual threshold. In this way, there is no, there's no aspect of shirk. Uh, a person may kiss even a letter they receive from a dear friend. Uh, Muslims do not worship the Holy Kaaba, nor do they seek anything from the black stone. Rather, these are considered to be physical examples bestowed by God and nothing else. So that's a quote from the uh, founder of the Amdi Muslim community, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizabhagurah Muhammad, and uh, it is fitting to use that to bring this particular subject of the importance of the black stone of the Kaaba to a close. Uh, we need to press on uh, because uh, time waits for no one, and uh, the next uh, particular subject that we are going to be dealing with is entitled Preparing Students uh, for Diversity at Work. And this is something that uh, we picked up from the uh, website Religion Media Center. Uh, and uh, it concerns a report uh, promoting the exploration of religion and worldviews in schools, fostering coherence and diversity. So this is the title of the report. And it was produced by Inform, the Faith and Belief Forum, and the Open University. Uh, highlights issues with uh, the current model of religious studies as taught in schools. Uh, despite the report finding a, s a societal fear of religion uh, that feeds into a negative perception of religious education, it also found people think RE is important to foster social cohesion and improve religious literacy and advocates for, uh, for to be re renamed uh, religion and world views, so RE is to re renamed as such to help young people enter a diverse and global uh, world. So I don't know what uh, uh, your views are on this, but uh, we will be, in fact, uh, sharing the views of uh, Amadim Basi, who I hope uh, will be joining us very, very sh uh, soon uh, on this particular uh, subject. Uh, now consider that um, uh, this is um, that consider that this is the Quranic uh, teaching, despite the fact that it treats idols as of no significance. Yet God reach, teaches the Muslims to abstain from insulting even the idols and admonishes them uh, instead to adopt a course of gentle persuasion, lest they should be provoked in turn uh, to abuse God. The Muslims would then uh, be responsible for such abuses. Uh, what manner of people are they who revile the name of this great prophet of Islam and speak of him with utter disrespect, uh, brutality, assailing his honor and tarnishing his spotless character? He's highly uh, revered uh, uh, prophet whose name is held in such awe as when uttered the great Muslim kings vacate their thrones and bow their heads to his commands. Uh, they considered an honor to be counted among the humblest of his servants. 
in this respect not a bounty of God, is this respect not a bounty of God? Those who dare insult the recipient of such honor do, in fact, quarrel with God himself. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, holds such a high station with God that to prove his truth has shown the world great miracles. In this, is this not the work of his mighty hand, which has bowed the heads of 200 million people before Muhammad, peace be upon him's threshold, granting that every prophet had many a heavenly sign in uh, his support? But the peerless signs shown in uh, the favor of the holy prophet, peace be upon him, outnumber them all. They continue to appear even today as they are manifested in the past. Um, so that is something that uh, can be um, mentioned in respect of what is relevant from the Islamic perspective uh, to this particular uh, item that we're discussing, uh, preparing students for diversity at work. Uh, I understand, you you're still on the line, are you? I am, I am. Okay, what else um, can be said about this from an Islamic point of view? So, Islamically, Islam teaches us that God has sent prophets among all the people of the world, and that among these prophets, he also sent religious books to guide them. And these prophets brought about great revolutions in the world, and today the moral compass of the world is to a great extent guided by the teachings that these luminary figures preached and practiced. Nowadays, there is a general decline in religious belief, and as a consequence, we see that there is less adherence to the general norms of moral values. In, um, in his address, titled Islam in Europe, A Clash of Civilizations, delivered in Berlin on the October 22, 2019, the fifth caliph and worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Hazrat Mizar Masur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, spoke about this decline and the importance of maintaining culture and heritage. First, he outlined the difference between civilization and culture. He said that, therefore, on this day, let us recognize the importance of coming together and appreciating the different cultures and religious practices that make up who we are as a human being. These practices not only show us where we have been, but chart a course for our future. And this is what Islam teaches us in terms of how we should live our life in respect and harmony with all religion, regardless whether they are poly, poly, um, they worship idols or not, or they, they are monotheists and worship one God. Great stuff. Um, well, we're still waiting to be connected to Amadeep, um, um, Amadeep Basi. He's a journalist uh, with a special interest in training journalists to report news in an unbiased and just manner. Uh, so while we are waiting for that, uh, we need to chat a bit more among ourselves than uh, Sharif. Um, what was your religious education like in school? Do you remember? Um, well, I I had a very different experience growing up because I was brought up in Mauritius. Mm-hmm. And Mauritius is one of those few countries in the world that the United Nations has actually defined it as one of the exemplar that the world should follow in oh. terms of religious tolerance and um, and um, assimilation across the world. So 
growing up in that environment where religious tolerance is at the forefront of everything that we do. So as a Muslim growing up in that um, world, I was um, taught mm. the the values and the benefit of all religion, whether it was Christianity, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Judaism, and Islam um, at school. So we had this tolerance. I had friends from all faiths, of all um, religion, castes, and uh, background. So Mauritius is one of those countries that has got an amalgamation of religions from all over the world due to the nature of what how Mauritius was has come to evolve over the centuries of through the British um, rule and the French rule the the Portuguese the Arabs and everything that came over so we've got a lot of them that were brought in Hmm. and even the law of the country is embedded in religious tolerance so if you look at the governmental system, it has a representative process where all religions are actually represented. And I joke with my friends about this, where um, when we go on holiday in Mauritius, there's a holiday, there's a public holiday every month. That's because every religion is represented. So Diwali is a bank holiday. Eid is a bank holiday. Christmas is a bank holiday. <laughs> the Chinese New Year is a bank holiday. So that religious tolerance is built in into the society. Mm-hmm. So growing up, we learned about it. We were never scared. We were never uh, worried about asking questions about why do you worship um, Shiva? Why do you worship Ganesh? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? And vice versa. They weren't worried. They weren't worried about asking us questions. It was embedded into the teaching of school. Are you still there? Sorry, you yeah. just. Oh, can you hear me? No, yeah, I can oh, hear you. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, no, so this is what I was saying, is that it's it's kind of embedded in the way we were, I was brought up. And mm. when I came over into the UK, there seems to be this disconnect between religion and schools, mm. where we're almost scared of asking the question, why do you believe what you believe? Explain it to me, teach me about it. And But the more we learn about it, the more tolerant we are. And yeah. this is why this article kind of hit home with me, where... We're preparing students to go into the world and into workforce, and the the workforce nowadays is a very diverse, very multicultural, and we need to be tolerant, we need to respect, we need to understand why Muslims go for Friday prayers, why do Christians um, believe what they believe, and all these kind of things. So it helps us um, become a more rounded person, Yes, I, mean, I can understand that. I suppose uh, there's a, mo- a lot that we can learn from uh, Mauritius, uh, wouldn't you say? Uh, because uh, you're quite right. Uh, the impression we get from uh, people who come from Mauritius is one of uh, uh, tolerance and acceptability of uh, different uh, different views and different perceptions, different faiths. And that's uh, a very healthy attitude to have. It, it is, and it's it's... It's enshrined in everything that we do and we believe in. So one of the things that Mauritius is proud of is we've never had any racial wars. Mm. There's never been any racial discrimination. Well, racial discrimination exists. We can't, we can't be ignorant to it. But it never gets to the level where there is an uprise because the government in itself will always stamp down on any intolerance that they perceive. So, for example, places of worship, are protected in law 
So if you deface a mosque or you disrespect a temple or a pagoda or um, a synagogue, the full weight of the law will fall upon you. Mm-hmm. Or if you discriminate based on someone's religion, you will be um, held to account. So Muslims get longer lunches to go for lo- for Friday prayers on a Friday, and it's the norm. It's accepted that Muslims will go for Friday prayers. It's not something that you even have to worry about. It's it's one of those things that it's embedded. It's not even something that we think twice about. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that's uh, that's very interesting uh, um, example that you've given, and I think that is something that this example of the way that Mauritius handles. It's uh, a multicultural, multi-diverse uh, society and uh, community. And uh, it's something that I'm sure that other societies, other communities can learn from. Anyway, we have uh, Professor uh, Tim Hutchings on the line. Uh, Dr. Hutchings uh, researches uh, widely across the fields of religion, media and culture and his, currently, uh, his current studies include attention to Christian video games, online worship, Christian responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, and religious journalism. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on The Breakfast Show, uh, Professor. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm quite intrigued by this, uh, these notes that I've just read out. Christian video games? What are Christian video games? Uh, well, there are uh, quite a few different Christian groups that have tried to turn the Bible into a video game mm-hmm. um, using biblical stories, biblical characters, and uh, either turning that into kind of an alternative fictional world that's inspired by the Bible or trying to encourage players to play through stories from the Bible as a way of learning about Christianity. Give me an example. Um, well, there's a game called Guardians of Ancora. Uh-huh. It was made by a Christian charity, and it's designed for um, children in... You can get it in English or Welsh. It's in a lot of different languages now around the world. Um, and it sends the player of the game into the the time of Jesus. Okay. Um, following Jesus around, running and jumping and sliding down ropes and that kind of thing. Um, All right. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, uh, can you tell us um, uh, something about your research then? Um, So I'm a a researcher in the field of religion and media, as you said, particularly interested in digital religion. I uh, did some research um, a few years ago looking at the idea of online worship, um, online churches, particularly in a Christian context, when long before the pandemic, when this was a, a kind of unusual thing that people were starting to think, maybe we could use the internet as a way of organizing religious communities. Um, and I spent uh, about 10 years or so trying to persuade my academic colleagues that this was a really important and worthy topic of study. And now here we are uh, after several years of pandemic when every religious community has had to find some way of using media. Mm. Um, but I, I also have another area of, of uh, research interest, as you know, which is about religious education. Right. But tell me, um, um, does... Uh online worship have the same impact as worship in person with other with others in a church? Um, well, I think that really depends on the person. Um, mm-hmm. For some, um, the, the most important thing about their gathering every week is the community. Um, it's the people that they've been sitting next to 
for maybe all of their life or, or for years or for decades, and they, they would never give that up. Um, but actually, a lot of people don't find that very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are some who are sick, maybe disabled, or they've had a bad experience of uh-huh. worship. They don't want to go back. Um, there are also people who find, to be honest, um, worshipping in person rather boring. Um, you go along every week, you do your thing, you go home again, but where's somebody who will talk to you about a great work of philosophy or uh, where's someone who will pray with you at three o'clock in the morning? You can find that online. Mm. Um, so I found when I was doing my research, I found some people who thought that actually their online worship was much more meaningful to them. It gave them the chance to find just the people they wanted to talk to at exactly the time of the day or night they needed them. Um, in a way that was accessible to them to have a conversation that could be perhaps more honest than something they could have in their local environment. Mm, mm, yeah, that's very interesting. We're discussing this report um, that's been issued recently about promoting the exploration of religion and worldviews in schools in order to foster uh, coherency and diversity. Um, and uh, What's your take on teaching religious studies uh, to help students in the wider world? Well, I, I teach religious studies at the University of Nottingham, um, and I support, um, I, I work for a, also for an organization called TRS UK, which is a, a network of all of the universities and colleges that teach religious studies in higher education. Um, and one of the things we want to do is to help schools to teach RE better in a more interesting way. Hopefully, so people will then carry on and think about university degrees where they could look at Islamic studies or or the study of other religious traditions in a university context. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we would like to see um, RE being taught from primary to secondary to university in a way that's as attractive and useful as possible to the widest range of students. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that uh, to rename it uh, as teaching on religion and worldviews is going to be a step in the right direction in that respect? Um, I hope so. I think that the the change of name has attracted a lot of attention. Um, a lot of people have, have wanted to debate that. Um, what it really is, I think, is a change in approach. Um, mm. It's a change in how the subject is taught. Um, the danger of calling it religion and worldviews is that for some people that sounds like you're adding a lot of extra things to the subject. It's going to get too big, it'll get too difficult to teach, there's too much to learn. Um, But it's really about uh, trying to teach the subject in a way that shows you it's relevant to everybody, as I see it. Um, In society today, some young people see themselves as religious, but a lot do not. Why would they want to do religious education? Mm. Um, but the religion and worldviews approach says, look, everybody has a worldview. Um, everybody has some set of assumptions, values, something that shapes their perspective on the world. Maybe it's very difficult to articulate that. Maybe they've never really thought about it before. Um, but let's study like how we understand the world around us. And let's look at religion as, um, as I see it, as an attempt from groups of people to come together and say, like, what if we, what if we try and figure out precisely what the world is like? Um, the, the some of the most sophisticated and powerful ways of understanding the world that humanity has come up with. Mm. Um, 
So, I mean, you can bring in theology and philosophy and sociology and different um, disciplines, history, different ways of learning um, to try and interpret and understand how worldviews work. Hmm. Do you think uh, religion and uh, religious teaching is important in uh, fostering a greater peace of mind? Um, it certainly can be. Um, we, well, I, I know and I'm sure you also know lots of people who find religious teachings to be a source of great peace of mind, mm-hmm. um, great confidence. Um, it gives them a certainty in what they need to do in the world, how they want the what they want the world to look like and how they think they could change the world to, to make it a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can also think of people who found great distress in religious teachings. And perhaps you can think of some as well who found uh, religious teaching gave them a lot of uncertainty, perhaps a lot of concern. Um, if you're going to study religion seriously, you need to talk about both of those perspectives, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, how else um, can we prepare students for diversity of work? Um, if Diversity at work, uh, if it's not to be included in religious studies? Um, well, so one big part of this proposal for religion and worldviews is um, to make sure that some kind of religious studies is taught to every school pupil, um, to the uh, the highest possible standard. Um, a lot of schools have been, in the past, somewhat uh, abandoning their duties, I think, in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what people need, I think, is experience of working together. Right. Um, often our stereotypes or our prejudices about other people are challenged most just by getting to know them. Mm. And um, as, as friends, as, as colleagues, um, so I'd hope to see people uh, encouraging students to work together on projects that explore their worldviews right. and help them to see uh, this friend of mine sees the world differently. Maybe they have a sacred text that's not important to me, but it's very important to them, or they have certain practices or values that they consider essential. Um, that's not because they're weird or wrong. Mm. Uh, it's because they have a different worldview, and I can try and understand that by working with them. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Thanks very much uh, for speaking to us. Thanks very much for coming on. I wish you all the best in your, in your research. You're fascinating Thank you research, very much. Especially on video games. It's really intrigued me. <laughs> <laughs> thank, well, thank, thanks for talking. Thank, thank you very much. Okay. Um, right, we have to move on. We've got uh, another expert. It's Suzanne uh, Newcomb. Uh, she is a senior lecturer in religious studies at the Open University as director of INFORM, uh, very important, uh, an independent educational charity based at King's College uh, London, which aims to provide accurate and up-to-date information about minority religious uh, movements. Uh, particular areas of uh, expertise include movements with uh, origins or inspirations from Asian and Indian traditions and contemporary groups which are interested in prophecy and the end of the world. So it's great to have her on the line with us. Uh, Shiri Banu, can you take this uh, this interview away, please? Indeed. Um, Dr. Newcomb, welcome and peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Dr. Newcomb, could you tell us what are the aims of INFORM and how do you work to achieve those aims? 
Well, Inform was set up to provide accurate and up-to-date information on minority religious groups. And originally this was new religions, but now it encompasses a lot of the smaller, um, newer groups within the mainstream traditions. And we do lots of things to um, try to bridge the gap between academic, particularly social scientific research and popular um, understanding. So we talk to the media, we take inquiries from the general public, and we also work with other organizations on projects, which is one of the reasons why I'm talking to you today, because they recently collaborated with the Faith and Belief Forum um, and Open University to look at how people outside the classroom, other stakeholders like parents, community groups, SACRAs, school leaders and other academics um, understand and what they think about religious education in schools and what they think about these religion and worldview proposals. Thank you for that. Um, we're talking about um, the recent report that addresses RE has a school subject and all the different attitudes and problems in teaching it. What do you think the value of RE, um, religious education, properly taught could be? I think it's such a fantastic window into understanding ourselves, understanding the social world, and a lot of the the geopolitical um, conflicts and tensions that influence all all businesses, all governments in, in the world today. Um, it teaches um, philosophical clear thinking. It can teach social scientific um, uh, skills of analysis and attention to evidence and it can also um, give an insight into kind of theological thinking and, and the structured thinking that is found within um, religious traditions about morality and the right way to live a life and how people come to make those decisions. Outside of school um, religion, can um, school, schools religion can often be seen as a taboo subject and religion blamed for conflict. How do you think this can be changed? Um, I think that it's a, it's a really important thing to try to change. Um, and the religious education program in schools, when done well, really does work to create a more nuanced and um, sensitive, sympathetic understanding that um, religion is not a monolithic thing that cannot just be um, othered. And it's not just about making assumptions of these people, this group of other people believe this, do this, and therefore mm -hmm. are different from me. But good yes. RE really interrogates the di internal diversity and in how we make those decisions and how we can um, use religion as an inspiration as well as a, a piece of a puzzle in more problematic situations. Um, that's, that's really interesting. And with that in mind, what roles do you think religious communities have in developing knowledge and diversity in the wider community? I mean, I think that from our research in um, focus groups about community groups, both religious ones and non-religious ones, um, and what your previous speaker was saying about um, people needing contact with other people and working together, I think religious education schools can be a great platform to get external speakers in to explain how they how they use their own religion as a moral compass to do community cohesion work to do other um other aspects of their lives better and it, it, it is really in these personal interactions and religious education schools provides one venue where um, an organization like faith and belief form trains up 
speakers mm-hmm. to explain their own personal faith and how it directs their life. But a lot of schools do this in, in other ways. So, so one is getting involved. And, and if you are a parent to talk to your RE teacher in primary school, people love people to come in and talk about holidays. But it's, it's more than that. It's not just essentializing. This is what a Muslim holiday looks like. It's like this is how um, a Muslim navigates their life in a really interesting and complex way and it's a valid way of being and, and you're a nice person and that really breaks down those stereotypes mm. and then you read the newspaper headlines in a different way. I, I, I agree and, and it's, it, it needs to be a more cohesion between communities and schools and how we communicate and share that knowledge and information. Um, one of the areas that we look at is media are often accused of promoting negative views which increases conflict over some religions and failing to mention positive news such as community outreach and everything else that um, communities tend to do in their local areas. Do you think this is true and does it affect attitude to religion generally? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely true. There's a lot of good research about how um, negative information we're psychologically primed to react to it, and that helps sell papers and um, gets really gets our attention, both in the traditional media and in more new social media. Um, and there's also a tendency. There's also been some new research about how, um, particularly, it's kind of saying, "Oh, that other group," and and just came back from America, so the Democrats or the Republicans, if you say that group did something bad, it really gets attention. And yeah. the media uses uses religion in this way all the time. And so we have to teach people to actively think beyond those headlines and to realize how um, both social and traditional media is trying to manipulate our attention. Um, and journalists can do a better job of how they place their interviews, how they provide context to other stories, which provide a broader picture of the, the real diversity of, of beliefs and practices within any tradition. I, um, this is interesting. Um, just to kind of um, dive into this a little bit more in terms of the media's involvement. While I, I completely agree with you that um, journalists and, and the people in the media should do a better job at, at promoting the benefits or the good work that communities, especially religious communities, do in the UK, do you think the general public in general have a, an input into this in terms of how they can be involved in terms of um, focusing the media? Because we, we see that what sells nowadays is bad news, is negative views, is negative information, but positive um, don't get much um, reading um, statistics or anything like that. Is that a fair statement to say? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think think it's not just today. I think that's the tendency of the news in general Um, and and how to challenge it, um, I think, is, is reading beyond the headlines and when maybe members of your community are in a position to comment to a reporter or be part of a news story to, to kind of go out of your way a bit to get into the text and, and identify that there's more, there's more going on here and there's a positive aspect. So say there's, and I think some of the disasters, um, religious groups have gotten good headlines in terms of what, when there's been, um, uh, like during COVID, a lot of um, religious organizations were opening their doors. A lot of religious organizations do really important work with providing food to those who need food. Um, and th- th- this kind of slow work, I think, does 
um, challenge the, the negative bias of the headlines. Um, but it's slow and, and not as attention grabbing. And, and it doesn't seem to get as much um, wide input, like you say. So people tend to read the negative, but then just take it on face value and don't add their comments or anything. Or if they add, it tends to be to, to kind of foster this negativity and to kind of reinforce it. And Quite often, um, I think last, oh, go on, please. Oh, I just think there's an opportunity on the local level that local news often op- offers um, a greater opportunity to emphasize um, more positive stories about how community groups and individuals within a, a local community are doing good things. It tends to be less negative than the national news. And so you can work your way up from there and that can make a big difference. And thank you for this. And finally, why or rather how do you think knowledge of religion enhances a person's worldview and can lead to a more inclusive society? Well, I think if we come back to the religious education in schools, and one of the um, reasons why it's a bit of a neglected subject is this increasing non-identification with religion amongst most of the British population. It's, it's not seen as relevant, um, but it still is. And what the religion and worldview proposal does is really point out that even if um, a lot of children today aren't attending a place of worship, their um, moral values, their sense of right and wrong is still coming from a historically religious tradition and their, their family traditions. And it's an, if we're not talking about these, we aren't going to understand our own, where we're coming from and where other people are coming from. And once we start unpacking our own position, um, we can deal more sympathetically with people coming from a different position. So I, I think that this idea of religious education and exploration of the different ways of, of the different disciplines in which we can understand religion, mm-hmm. the theological, the philosophical, the social scientific and, and our moral, personal moral reflections are, are really important. And religious education in schools offers a platform for this that isn't addressed elsewhere in the curriculum. I I agree. And it, it is something that we, we all need to try to be better at, especially parents with children and how that's perceived in school and their involvement. Um, Dr. Newcomb, thank you for your time. And I wish you all the best and may the peace and blessing of Allah be upon you. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. Thank you. Right, so that was uh, Professor Newcomb, uh, one of the authors of this uh, study that we're discussing. Uh, Well, it brings us uh, very close to the conclusion of this uh, broadcast. Uh, Leaves us to thank those people who have been involved. Um, uh, The producer, uh, Malia, uh, the researchers, Kutia Ward, Sayyidah Hannah Saud, Sadia Bakhtiar, and Neha. Uh, and let's not forget uh, our uh, intrepid uh, engineer in the control room, m- making sure that everything ran smoothly. That's Alan Ahmed Akib, or is it Akib Ahmed Alan? I've got it the right way around at least once. Um, we must also not forget to thank those people who have lent their expertise to give us a great understanding of the topics that uh, we were discussing. Uh, the main topics we discussed, uh, the first of these, was the importance of the Blackstone of the Kaaba. And in this respect, we were aided 
uh, in our uh, reflection over this particular topic, our understanding of this particular topic by Imam Ibrahim Noonan, who spoke to us earlier, and uh, also by Dr. Bernard Hackle. Dr. Bernard Hackle is Professor of Northeastern uh, Studies. He's the director uh, of the Institute for Trans-Regional Study of uh, Contemporary Middle East. So very useful to have his views on this topic. And if I didn't mention it before, let me also explain that Mr. Ibrahim Noonan is Imam Ibrahim Noonan, and uh, he's uh, a missionary uh, who um, is um, assigned uh, to, to Ireland. Uh, so his views were certainly very important. And then we also spoke to James Sinclair. James Sinclair is uh, a theology student, and uh, he was also able to uh, lend his expertise uh, uh, to us for a un- greater understanding of uh, what uh, this subject was about, importance of Blackstone, uh, of the Kaaba. Uh, the, that was the first topic. The second topic that we dealt with was... Uh, uh, concerning a report that has recently been issued uh, relating to preparing students for diversity at work. Uh, so this uh, was, uh, um, our understanding of this was assisted by uh, Dr. Suzanne Newcomb, who we were talking to just a few minutes ago. Dr. Newcomb is uh, Honorary Director of INFORM and co-author of the subject, uh, Promoting the Exploration of Religion and Worldviews in Schools. Uh, and we also spoke to Tim Hutchins. Uh, Tim Hutchins is assistant professor of religious ethics faculty at the Faculty of Arts in the University of Nottingham. But of course, uh, Mr. Hutchins is involved in research, and some of his research was, was very interesting to to learn about. So a very a good array of experts that we were able to um, bring uh, to the fore in uh, the discussion of these um, uh, topics that uh, we were addressing. So um, with that, I mean, uh, we are going to be um, having the eight o'clock ne- 9 o'clock news very soon. Uh, so until uh, next time uh, on the breakfast show from 7 to 9 o'clock, it's Islam Lakum from me and Islam Lakum from my co-host uh, Sharif Bunu. Uh, and uh, we were going to have a short, short interlude after that. You'll have the uh, 9 o'clock news. So, assalamu alaikum to you all.